Good afternoon, Christ Church family. It is great to be with you. And uh, let's be honest, we all, we all feel a little better about ourselves if Dr. David messes up every once in a while. <laughs> you can only be so gifted. I've always asked the Lord, how did you make him an engineering, organizing mind, and yet a prophetic and apostle to the nations? And so uh, it is great, great to be here. And Pastor David, thank you for the invitation. We uh, don't take it lightly. And just, we live in Maryland, but we feel so connected to this house. We so, feel so blessed by what God is doing here. How many of you are thankful to be a part of an uncommon kingdom family? Come on, a regional blessing, an international blessing. Thank you for sharing your pastors and leaders. Uh, Pastor David has, I have never walked away from an interaction with him not being challenged to keep growing in some way without a deposit being placed in me. And uh, I am so thankful for that. Uh, had a great time in Israel this January as well with Pastor Ryan, and we just, we love your leaders, we love your family, and so if we haven't met yet, listen, I'm just one of your brothers, a son of the house that's just living in another state, and that's how we operate, and so we're so grateful to be here. I'm glad I was able to bring my family for this visit, and really today what I want to do is more than preach a nice sermon, I want to I want to bring a prophetic thought. I want to plant a seed, and really, I want to ask a question. And the question I want to pose and ask today is, who's at your table? As we lean into this welcome back season, as people are coming back from vacation, as school is getting started and things are picking back up again, as you're going to be looking to invite people over the next month to church every weekend, opportunities, who is at your table? Because what I've learned is, Whoever I invite to my table actually has proximity to my God. When I want someone to get to know the Jesus that I know and love, I have to, I have to do it in a close proximity. I have to be willing to bring them, maybe not to my physical table, although many times yes, but into my relational world. Are you with me? So I want you to think about this question as we go through our time together this afternoon. Who is at your table? Now, I don't know what your family gatherings were like growing up in the holidays and that type of thing for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but growing up, we would always go to my grandmother's house, and my mom's side of the family is 100% Portuguese, and so maybe you had a grandmother or a Mimi or an Oma, but I had a Vovó. That's grandmother for Portuguese, and I loved everything about going to Vovó's house except sitting at the kitty table. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? And because I'm one of six siblings in such a large family, I was basically a young adult before I even had access to the adult table. I thought to myself, what needs to happen here? Like, what, what do I, who do I need to talk to to get out of the kitty? Who needs to die before I can, like, inherit a seat <laughs> at the real table? And there are so many different tables in our lives. There's the conference room and the boardroom table where you make critical decisions about business and the marketplace. There's uh, the social circle where you play games and cards. You, you have a social table. You have a, for some of you, you've got young children, right? We just dedicated. Uh, and by the way, can I just say that I love watching baby dedications happen where there's even a prophetic word implanted in the heart of the next generation. Come on, at Christ Church, it's uncommon. Even the baby dedications are uncommon. If you're a guest today, you're in a good place. But we have all these different tables in our lives that represent the relational world, the people that we allow to come close to us, to be impacted by the God that lives within us. And so I want to ask, 
who's at your table because this idea of being on a quest and being on a spiritual journey with God is the greatest quest of the human soul, to get to know God through the personhood of Jesus. But how many of you know not everyone is where you are at the same mile marker you are in that spiritual quest? I love the racial diversity. I love the cultural diversity of Christ Church. But what really gets me going is to see the spiritual maturity and diversity of those that are further along in their journey, reaching back and living with this conviction that my next spiritual steps are intimately tied to someone else's first spiritual steps. And for me to go further with Christ means that I can't just run deeper and deeper into the things of God for myself. I have to look up and see who I'm taking with me. Come on, church. It's a family thing. It's a, it's a spiritual journey. And so we have to have people around our table to do that. Thankfully, Scripture gives us a much-needed insight from the life of King David. You see, because God is greatly interested in who you have sitting at your table. He has a huge... Uh, passion and, and interest to see who are the lives that we connect with. And so I want to share with you three thoughts today on this message, who's at your table. And thought number one is this. I want to challenge you to look for someone to honor. Look for someone to honor. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we begin in verse 1, a story of King David. He's newly been established into his kingdom. The kingdom of Saul is now waning, and the kingdom of David is now rising. And verse 1, it says, And David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You know, sometimes you treat people a certain way, not even because of the person, but because of another relationship you're trying to honor. Uh, you notice the profile that David used, the criteria that David used to who he wanted to show kindness to. He said, is there anyone in my kingdom connected to a family who used to be enemies of mine that I now want to show kindness to? This is a picture of Old Testament kindness that is really New Testament grace. Uh, to show honor to someone is to say that I value you, I esteem you, you have worth. Verse 2 he summoned a man who could give him some answers, a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. Then the king asked him, is anyone still alive from King Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. I want you to see that the kindness that we choose to give to one another actually reflects the kindness and nature and heart of God. David said, whoever I show kindness to, they actually receive kindness from the Lord. So that means that how I treat people is an extension of God's hands and feet. How many of you know that's a big deal? God says, "Don't listen, you, you can't say that you love me if you don't love the brother that you see right next to you. So David says, I, I'm looking for someone to show kindness to. And Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Notice the introduction. He doesn't even give his name. He gives his issue. How many people do we work with? How many people in your workplace, your family, in your neighborhood that we interact with on a regular basis, they identify themselves with their issue? Whether it was a divorce, whether it was abortions in their past, whether it was a diagnosis they've received, an addiction. People that don't even know their true identity, they are introduced to people and were thought of in our mind uh, connected to their issue. 
David says, this is the guy that I want to show kindness to. Now, I want to ask a question. What would happen in our everyday lives if we asked the Lord? What would happen if you woke up and said to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me today someone that I can extend kindness to? How many of you know our days would not be very boring? They'd get pretty eventful pretty quickly because we know that God answers prayer, right? What, what would happen if we began to go through almost like those people that work on the antique road show where, where someone looks at this item and says it's common, but another expert says, no, 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 this has great value. What if you went through your day like you were one of the experts on the antique road show looking for value that other people said it's just common? Oh, that's so-and-so. That's their issue. I love the quote from Bill Johnson. He says, honor is when you can celebrate who a person is without stumbling over who they're not. Come on, people are never going to live up to our expectations. We don't even live up to our expectations. But we can celebrate who a person is without stumbling over who they're not. Number one, I see David saying, look for someone that you can honor. Invite them into your life in some way. Bring them to your table. In Luke 14, Jesus tells us a parable where he is sending out workers to bring them into a feast, to a banquet. He's saying, I want you to invite people to my father's table, and I want you to do it with great urgency because time is short. And he says, here is who I want you to invite. The blind, the lame, the poor, those that are identified by their issues that other people would never honor or value. Invite them to my table because I want my father's house to be full. And do it quickly because time is short. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying everyone is invited to the father's table. And he's saying that every invitation comes with an expiration date. And God's sovereign kindness, I don't know how long a person has to respond to the drawing of the Lord. Now, I, I learned that every invitation comes with an expiration date at a, at a pretty young age. My older brother, Matt, who was only 18 months older than I, and uh, we got into a lot of trouble together. <laughs> One day we were playing in our backyard, and, and I could smell the neighbor cooking barbecue chicken. Come on, church, how many of you know that's one of the best smells? That's a heavenly smell. God says, when you want to worship me, send me some beef that's cooking, you know, give some incense up to heaven. Listen, for all you vegans, just, just don't hate me right now, okay? <laughs> so I smell the barbecue chicken, and they're having this big cookout, and, and Elaine, our neighbor, and, you know, you have to forgive me, but at six years old, I thought Elaine was as old as dirt. She was probably only in her 70s, but I thought, you know, this woman could die any day. She was old, and, and normally she didn't really like us because all of our balls would get kicked into her yard and just all that. When you live next to six rowdy kids, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I just decided maybe, maybe if we looked hungry enough and sorry enough staring at their food and their guests, they'd invite us over for lunch. And so I'm there with my brother Matt, and sure enough, Elaine, she invites us over. We start eating their barbecue chicken. We're with people we don't even know. My mother would be mortified if she had known what was happening. And so then we eat as much as we can. We go back to playing. A couple hours later, I'm hungry again. It's late in the afternoon. I say to my brother Matt, I bet Elaine has more barbecue chicken left. He looks at me like I'm crazy, but I said, come on, Matt. So we go over there. Everything's cleaned up. Everything's gone. I said, surely they brought it all into the house. So I go to the back door, and I start knocking. No one answers the door. And so I open the back door to the house. It goes right into the kitchen. And I say, Elaine, 
Elaine, are you in there? I don't hear anything. And I'm thinking she's going to be flattered. We're going to compliment her on how good her chicken is, and we just want more. I hear nothing, and so, trust me, the story gets a little worse. I look to the left of the empty kitchen. I see this wooden door, and so I say, I'm just going to see what's beyond that door. Maybe I can call for her. So I go over through the kitchen. I open the door, and I say, Elaine, and I look in, and she's lying on her bed taking an afternoon nap. She opens her eyes and looks over and goes, ah! I jumped. I said, Matt, get out of here. We run out of the kitchen, out of the house, back through our yard, back into our house. We put on our pajamas as quickly as we can, and we jump into bed. My father comes home about a half hour later. It's 5 o'clock. He says, where are the boys? My mom says, they put themselves to bed. They must have done something awfully bad if they put themselves to bed. I learned that day that every invitation comes with an expiration date. There's an urgency in the gospel to get people around your table and close to your life because they need what you have. What a shame it would be if Christ Church became the greatest secret in this region. What a shame it would be if our greatest moments were enjoying the presence of God and dedicating our children and enjoying the word of God and the people around us had no idea what was living inside of us. God has a desire. He has a vested interest of who gets around your table. So who is in your life right now that needs to know the gospel that you live by, that needs to know the hope that you have? And listen, if you came to Christ Church today and maybe you came with a friend or you came by yourself and you're not even really sure how you ended up in the seat that you're in, I just want to speak to you today and say before you leave, you're going to have an opportunity to, to give your life to Jesus Christ and to see him do things inside of you and through you that you could never do apart from him. We're going to do that today. Number one, look for someone to honor. Number two, I want you to see, we should look for someone to honor in the most unlikely of places. See, we pray, God, use me. God, give a divine appointment to my life. But we want it under our terms. Come on, church, let's be honest. How many of you have felt your heart racing and you're in the Target checkout line and you're thinking, I don't know this person. I don't want to invite them to church right now. I don't want to necessarily share my story with them. We, we start rehearsing to God. God, I'm an introvert. As if he doesn't know how he wired you and put you together. Right? But there are these moments when God will give you an opportunity to bring someone close that you weren't looking for. I had one of those recently. I was traveling in Buffalo, getting ready to speak at a conference and to some church leaders and doing some consulting. I thought my appointment was these Christian leaders. I didn't know that my appointment was waiting for me in the lobby of the hotel. And to make a long story short, I'd just say that there was a man, Jared, before I even met him, I could smell him. I had never been to a hotel where the hospitality team had been smoking before I got there. And Jared clearly was disheveled and, and struggling in life and questioning all kinds of things. Had several of his friends overdose in the past few months. And we began to strike up a conversation. I was tired. I didn't want to have a conversation. I was saying, God, can't you just use me at the conference tomorrow? Come on, how many of you have had honest conversations? God, I prayed for a divine appointment, but I'll take a pass on this one. But you've got to look for people that you can honor in the most unlikely Places. I, it wasn't that I had to invite him to my house and bring him to my table. The table was right there over the counter at the lobby. 
And he began to share with me, I'm, I'm searching for answers and I'm looking into world religions. And, and long story short, I just, I said to him, Jared, I don't have an answer to every question you're asking. I can answer a lot of them, but I don't think that's really what you want. I'll tell you this, if you'll ask Jesus Christ who he is, he will reveal himself to you in a way that no one else could explain, but is so real to you. And if you have the courage to open your heart, he'll do that. And man, that just, that, that shook him. And I invited him to come with me to the event I was speaking at. And I brought him into the table. And, and, I, and I don't say this to boast about my boldness. I was reluctant the whole way. I'm, I'm a lot more like you than you'd realize. An amazing thing happened. As I'm speaking at the event, I come down off the stage and, and Jared is there sobbing and says to me, I need Jesus in my life right now. I need, to, I need the Jesus that you've talked about in my life. And so we prayed. He prayed himself into the kingdom, and I was just a part of it. Isn't it amazing when you will just step out in those unlikely places and unlikely moments? Listen, what you pray for, you begin to look for, and what you look for, you will find. And the moment, listen, there are people waiting on the other side of your obedience. I, I promise you, God has a vested interest of who sits around your table. There are people that you work with. There are people that you socialize with. There are people you have no idea what they wrestle with on the inside. But because the Holy Spirit knows everything about all of us, he will lead you and guide you and direct you and drop you into their lives at the right time, at the right moment. We've got to look for people that we can honor. We've got to look for people in unlikely places. Look at verse 4. David says, where is this relative of Jonathan? In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. Now Lodabar, the town that this relative Jonathan's son, the grandson of Saul, grew up in, the word Lodabar in the Hebrew means land of nothing. If you thought you grew up in a rough neighborhood, a rough family, a tough social economic background, how about growing up in a town where they named it the land of nothing? David says, that's who I want to engage in a relationship with. There are people who feel like they've come from nothing and therefore feel like they are nothing. So what's our strategy? Our strategy is to honor them, to show value to them. Because when I show kindness, they receive the kindness of God. Here's the thing. When people don't know the purpose of something, they'll abuse it. When my children were growing up and they grabbed my golf clubs out of the garage, they did not know the purpose of those golf clubs, so they became clubs and swords and weapons. And right when, you're, when I see little kids grab a parent's iPhone and run off with it, right, everything inside of me is like, oh, dear Jesus, that's a $1,000 phone. When you don't know the purpose of something, you will abuse it. The problem is that when people don't know the purpose of their lives, they'll abuse themselves. This is the story of Jonathan's son. He grew up in the land of nothing. And here's what the gospel says. When you get around people who believe they are nothing, the God inside of you can awaken something in them. They're made in the image of God. Come on. They have value because they come from the same creator. They may not even have any of the same belief systems yet, but they're made in the image of God, therefore they have value. And so I want to encourage you, don't be afraid to get near people like that that are very different from you. In the Old Testament, if there were a leper 
and you touch that leper, their uncleanness would get on you. Old Testament. Religion that way. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he came close to a leper, what would happen? Jesus would touch the leper, and not the uncleanness came on him, but his power and his virtue was transferred to the leper. Do not be afraid to touch people in your life that are nothing like you because they need the God that's inside of you. Amen? Come on, Christ Church. Who is around your table? Who's around your table? Our city of Baltimore has been in the national news for the past three weeks in a significant way, uh, kind of exposing things that have been there for, for many, many years. And there is a friend of mine that, it, that is a part of our church who is the head of the chaplaincy program in Baltimore, who works with the mayor, the chief of police, and also all of the spiritual leaders in the city, they have hired him. They, they've recognized something on his life. They pay him a full-time salary to be a liaison between what they call the street leaders, which would be the drug dealers, the gang leaders, the pastors, and the police force. Because they said, we've got to get these, this triangle of influence working again. And so they have hired him, and one of the things that they do is every summer they do a camp, and the chief of police in the school district will identify 50 of the most at-risk students in the Baltimore school system. You want to talk about Lodabar. You want to talk about the land of nothing. These kids are growing up in the land of nothing. And they are taught not to trust the authorities. There's a a deep-seated mistrust between them and law enforcement. So they're invited to this camp, and for a whole week long, for some of them, it's the first time they've been away from their house overnight at any kind of camp ever in their lives. But what they don't know is the counselors who are eating meals with them morning, noon, and night, playing games with them, doing athletics with them, teaching and training and challenging them as mentors, every single one of those counselors are police officers. At the last night of the week, which happened to be this past Thursday night, they do a reveal night where the chief of police comes out and introduces all of the counselors, but now they're dressed in their full gear in their uniforms as officers, and to see the reaction of these students and campers and their eyes and their tears and their trying to wrestle with, but I, I thought I hated cops, but I love you and you were with me all week and you just, there's something, there's a reprogramming that can happen when love and kindness come before anything else. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you would just show them kindness, if you would just honor people and show them that they're valuable when they don't believe they're valuable, and then you reveal that you're my follower, something dramatic happens. How many of you know if those cops came in uniforms and were the counselors right out of the gate, there would have been no connection? And let's be honest, a lot of us, most people misunderstand the word Christianity or what it means to be a Christ follower. And so as kingdom leaders, as, as children and, and, and daughters and sons and daughters of God, we can contextualize our influence without compromising our values. Are you with me? So God can drop you into different environments and you're honoring people that, that think nothing like you, vote nothing like you, look nothing like you, but they're made in the image of God just like you. And so God says, I want you to contextualize your influence without compromising your values. It's, it's an amazing thing. God cares around who's around our table. We've got to look in unlikely places. Let's look in verse 6. 
we finally get his name. We got his issue. We got where he came from. He's crippled. Comes from the land of nothing. His name is Mephibosheth. Christ Church has dedicated a lot of children. I guarantee there has not been one Mephibosheth. <laughs> Any pregnant moms, go ahead and take that name. You'll never have another one live in your neighborhood. And so it's just your kids. His, he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Watch the interaction now. Watch the mindset. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect, and David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. But David could perceive some fear, some intrepidation, because the household of Saul has been trying to kill David, and Mephibosheth is his grandson. And so he thinks David means harm to him. Sometimes when we move towards people because of the preconceived notion of what it means to be a Christian, people, people get nervous. People are apprehensive. They don't know if we mean kindness. They wonder if we're coming close to judge them to get a closer look at their problems, right? He says, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. David said, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. The beginning of our relationship isn't even about me and you. It's about another person that I love. Therefore, out of the overflow of that relationship, I'm going to honor you. Come on. David said, I intend to show you kindness. He says, I'm going to give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here at my table, the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, watch this. You catch a glimpse into his self-image. Who is your servant that you would show such kindness or grace, honor, to a dead dog like me? Now, in our culture, we love our pets, right? Some of you, if you don't have grandchildren yet, you show people pictures of your fur baby on your phone, right? It's all about, I mean, I, we have a German shepherd, and, and when it's her time to pass, uh, I'll probably cry and shed more tears than I have at many funerals. You know what I'm saying? We love our pets, in that culture, a dog was not a beloved pet in the family. And a dead dog is a nasty nuisance to be dealt with and get rid of. Mephibosheth says, I'm a nasty nuisance, David. I've learned that I came from nothing. I am nothing. Why do you want to show kindness to me? What's interesting is a friend of mine who is fluent in Hebrew which is the text of the Old Testament. It's written in Hebrew. He said that the word, the name Mephibosheth, this is what it actually means in Hebrew. Mephibo means out of my mouth. Sheth means shame or embarrassment. Every time Mephibosheth's name was pronounced, shame was declared over him. Every time he introduced himself, he's aware of his issue, and now he pronounces shame over himself. I wonder if the Holy Spirit pulled back the curtain and showed us the issues of the people's lives that are around us, if we could see the shame that people carried. You just last several weeks did a series on sexuality. The, the forgiveness that's there, but the stain of shame that people work through in their sexuality in sexual confusion, in their financial... How many of you have made decisions that you've been ashamed of financially that have hurt your family in some way or relational decisions? If we as believers know that dealing and getting free from shame is a big deal, how much more people that are outside of the family of God wrestling with shame as their identity because of the choices that they've made, 
Mephibosheth, every time he opens his mouth, he utters shame. And the enemy will try to come and lie and say that guilt is bad enough, but guilt is related to what you've done. Shame is connected to who you believe that you are. And so Mephibosheth is declaring shame over his life. They say that in your self-talk, be careful what you say to yourself because you're always listening. And I bet Mephibosheth, because of his situation, was probably a classic victim. Because his situation, he wasn't always crippled for the first five years of his life. He was a young person running around like any other kid. But when his grandfather Saul disobeyed God and stepped out of the will of God and died in battle, his mate, the maidservant of the house picked up Mephibosheth to run out of the house. And she tripped and fell and dropped him, and he became crippled in both of his legs. So now he's not only raised in the land of nothing, his name means shame or embarrassment, but someone else did something to him to put him in this situation. Have you ever met someone who is a perpetual victim? It's someone else's thought. It's fault. It's, the, it's my grandfather. It's my upbringing. It's, it's what they've done to me. And poor Mephibosheth does not know that there are options for his life. He doesn't even know there's any other way to live. His belief system is so marred. When you, when you think about your belief system, it really is comprised of three things. Every one of us in this room. Your belief system is who you think yourself to be, what you think you can do, and what you believe you can have. So it's, it's comprised of those three things. Who you think you are, what you believe you can do, and what you believe you can have in this life. And how many of you are thankful that our belief system comes from the word of God, comes from the spirit of God, gets shaped and confirmed within the family of God, right? But our belief system is massive. And here is Mephibosheth believing that he is a dead dog. What kind of person invites a dead dog into their relational world? A pretty strong person. A pretty healthy person. In fact, you want to show, I'll give you a definition of a, my definition of a big person. A big person is when they get around small people, small people feel big. A small person is when they get around other people and they make them feel small. David, there was something in David being in the presence of God, under the love of God. We get a glimpse of David's self-image in Psalm 139. He says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm not perfect, but God knit me together. He knew me in my mother's. He knew me before I knew me. And I'm fearfully. He says, I know full well that I am made that way. That's a healthy self-image. When God can deal with our own self-image in a healthy way, we will look for people to honor. We will look for people that we don't want to identify just by their issues. We want to bring them close to us so they can have an encounter with the Jesus that lives in us. Amen? And I just want to challenge you. that You don't have to take an old mindset into a new season. Let me show you a picture of a quote that I love from a preacher named Paul Scanlon. He says, the ghosts of all the people you used to be are proud of who you've become and thank you for letting them go. All the former versions of you would like to thank you for not mistaking them as the final you. They don't miss you. They don't need to hear from you, nor do they want you to visit or go back for a vacation. It's all good. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, it's all good. Look at your other neighbor and say, keep going. 
The Bible says from faith to faith, glory to, come on, we are on a spiritual journey. We're on a quest of discovering who I am, what I can have, and what I can do. And the moment God can get us healthy in that self-image, there is an attractional pull around your life. We have different doctors and neuroscientists even in this church, and I was speaking at an event that Dr. Carolyn Leaf was at. And I was just kind of geeking out on the front row. I was, I was sitting on the front row. I was leaning in and, and just learning how neuroscience is proving that people can be transformed in their mind, like completely. Here, here's one little example for you. When you wake up in the morning, if you choose to be grateful, scientists are saying that gratitude is now the lubricant or the oil of the brain. If you choose to be grateful, it actually releases and secretes an oil in your brain that allows for creative thought and elasticity in your neural uh, tissue. Just gratitude. That's biblical. How about this? Neuroscientists know now that every thought that you have in the organ of your brain travels through your body faster than the speed of light and leaves a little impression in every single cell. Inside your cells, in your molecular makeup, there is energy or vibrations released because of your thoughts. As a man or woman thinks, so are they. They call it the law of vibration because it gives off a vibration. That's why sometimes you'll say without even knowing it, it's scientifically accurate, I, just, I didn't get a good vibe from that person. You didn't. Because 24-7, the human soul broadcasts what we deeply believe at the core of our being to everyone around us. No words are exchanged, but there is a vibration. There is a very real, I felt kind of the soul of that person. It takes a really healthy person to, to feel the negative, traumatic vibe of a person like a dead dog from the land of nothing and say, I want you around me. How many of you know you won't come to that conclusion on your own? That takes Jesus inside of you to see people the way he sees them, valuable, worth dying for, made in his image, not identified by their issue. So here's the statement I want you to think about. Your vibe will attract your tribe. Your vibe will attract your tribe. Who is attracted to your life that looks nothing like you but needs Jesus just like you? Christ Church, what would it look like culturally? Culturally, here at this campus and in Montclair, what would it look like if the cultural vibe in the community said, you're welcome, you're valued, we're, looking be we're celebrating without stumbling? What would that look like with the attractional pull to people saying, listen, we're on a quest to know God more, and we know that my next spiritual steps are really tied to your first spiritual steps, so don't worry, you're welcome here. You don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to have mutual friends. There's a place in my small group for you. There's a place. We've got to look for people that we can honor. We've got to look in unlikely places. And number three, as we close, we've got to look for someone that we can bring to our table. Let's look at 2 Samuel 9 as we close. The passage says this. It says, Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba, and he said, I have given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul. He says, you and your sons, your family are going to take care of the farmland for him and produce food for your master, Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth himself, your master's grandson, will have a seat at my table. 
Now think about this for a moment. Mephibosheth can't even get himself to the table. He's crippled. It takes great work just to get him seated at the king's table. He's sitting there. What are the other sons of David thinking? What's Joab the general thinking with this dead dog sitting at the table? See, when you move towards people, because God has gripped your heart with compassion to honor them, other people won't know what you're doing. They'll say, one is not like the other. It doesn't make sense. So Mephibosheth is here at the invitation of the king, and I want you to notice this table is a picture of the grace of God that all of us have needed. When Mephibosheth sits at David's table, he sits as an equal with the sons. When Mephibosheth sits at the table, his handicap is covered by grace. When you look at Mephibosheth, you can't see his crippled legs. You just see another one of the sons of the kings that's been invited to the table. How many are thankful to be invited by the king himself, by the grace of God? You couldn't have gotten yourself to the table. You couldn't have earned your way out of the kitty table. Here you sit. So I want to ask, who in your life could you bring a little closer I want to tell you that, listen, sometimes religious thinking will say, ah, that, if you move in compassion, it's really compromised. No, no. You can move in acceptance towards people without approving of their lifestyle. Just because I accept you as a person doesn't mean I approve of your unbiblical lifestyle. But grace and honor sets the stage for the table of truth. If I come out in my uniform or my crusader Christian flag and I have to lead many times with grace so that I can invite you into truth. And so at the table, Mephibosheth is there and he didn't earn it. But his, his, his issue is now swallowed up by grace. It's covered over by grace. And now some people will say, well, what, do I invite anybody to my table? Dr. Ireland taught me the difference between weakness and wickedness. Mephibosheth was crippled. He was weak. He had an issue. There are some people that are weak and they need the community of faith and they need to be brought in close and, and, and they may not look like you or think like you and they still need access to your relational world. Then there are people that are wicked. They're dangerous. And you know what they need? Lawyers, boundaries, and your prayers. Or as Henry Cloud, the Christian psychologist said, money, guns, and lawyers. <laughs> So I'm not saying let everyone, I'm not saying get engaged to a non-believer. I'm not saying let in your inner circle some foolish person. But I'm also saying don't use those excuses of wise boundaries to keep everybody out and to allow your life to be surrounded by a citadel and a moat to keep people that really need proximity to you. Who is at your table? What is the response that is appropriate since we've been invited to a table that we should never even be sitting at in the first place. I believe the response is that we, we give it away. We invite others. We say, listen, <laughs> you see me at the table and you see me now. The way we say, you see the glory, you don't know the story. We have all come out of shame. Come on, church. We've all come out of some things. We've all had some issues. It's the grace of God that put us there so we can boldly say to people, listen, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to love you. You don't need me as your Savior. You only need one Savior because Jesus, once he gets on the inside, he'll transform you from the inside out. So I want to close with this story. 
We've been given such a great gift. How do we value that gift and leverage it for the heart of the king? I love baseball. Some of you don't like baseball. That's okay. In heaven, you'll see otherwise. God loves baseball. Some of you think it's bored. It's just because you don't understand the strategy involved. It's all right. But even if you're not a baseball fan, if I do this and point my bat here, you know I'm, I'm symbolizing the Bambino, Babe Ruth. How many Yankees fans are in the house? Come on. True baseball fans, let me hear a shout. Not quite as loud as you do for Jesus, but yes, we love the Yankees. Okay. Babe Ruth signed seven wooden bats before his death, gave them to his agent, and his agent was going to distribute them as he saw fit. Bat number one out of seven was given to a man because he won a home run derby competition. And it disappeared from circulation. All the other six bats were available and out there and being bid on by collectors. For years and years, no one knew what had happened to this valuable gift. As the man was aging and dying, he outlived his family, and there was really no one to inherit this gift. So he, he gave it to his hospice nurse because of the incredible care and honor she showed him in his final days. She had no idea how valuable the gift was, so she went home and threw it under her bed. For 18 years, it sat under her bed for home protection in case there was ever a break-in. She was a struggling entrepreneur. She wanted to get a restaurant started. She had some financial issues, and she said to herself, I was given that gift. I wonder what it's worth. She pulls the bat out from under her bed that stayed there for 18 years. She brings it to a collector's off a desk and, and drops it on the counter and says, I believe that I have a nice bat here. He looks at it and sees Babe Ruth etched into the bat. He authenticates it and says, this is the very first bat out of seven bats in the world, ma'am. This is a true Babe Ruth bat, incredibly valuable. So she takes her bat. She's so excited. She goes to auction. In 2006, she sold that bat for $1.3 million. That was a valuable gift, my friend. So she opens her restaurant. She starts her business. She uses that. And then she did something that shocked everyone. She opened up a children's foundation and poured in massive resources from the money from that bat to touch lives of kids all across the country. And an interviewer asked her, they said, why did you do that with the money? Listen to her response. She said, what else could I do in response to such a gift? The gift was only valuable because of Babe Ruth's name on that bat. How could I not honor his name with what I did with the gift? I just want to ask you the question. We have been honored with a gift being brought to the king's table. What is the only logical response we can do but to honor others by inviting them to the table? Come on, Christ Church, let's stand to our feet this morning.